today. It will be our opening prayer for our worship service, but will also be a prayer for the persecuted church worldwide. I've asked our um, missions pastor to come and, and voice that prayer, please. Let's pray. Lord, as the song 
and the words we just sang, who can stop the Lord Almighty? Nothing. But God, we want to pause and pray for our persecuted brothers and sisters around the world that are today having to meet in private, that are today having to hide the word of God, um, that are having to meet in private for the possibility of, of losing life or losing or spending time in prison because of their belief in you. God, we can't fathom that here because we have that freedom. We have that freedom today to come into this place of worship. We have that freedom today to carry our Bible in and to, to, to hear the word of God proclaimed. But God, there's people around the world that, don't, that do not have that privilege. And God, we want to pray for them today. Pray for their uh, peace. But God, as many of them have said, please don't take the persecution away because that's what's progressing and that's what's advancing the gospel. So God, in all of it, we pray that your name would be lifted up. We pray that your name would be glorified. We pray that your name would be proclaimed and that people around the world will come to know you because we know that one day every tongue, tribe, and nation will bow at your feet and sing holy, holy, holy. So God, be with us today and help us to remember those around our world. And we just pray for them today in Jesus' name. Amen. Good morning. It is always a joyful thing to observe baptism. Uh, it, baptism demonstrates what has already taken place in the life of a person. A total transformation done by God. Right? Uh, this is Carrick Krause, uh, the husband of Alyssa Krause. We knew her as Alyssa Patterson when she was growing up in, in this church. But uh, Carrick have you uh, repented of your sins and placed your faith in Jesus Christ? Yes. Uh, upon your profession of faith in Jesus Christ and in obedience to our Lord's commands, be baptized now in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Lord, in the likeness of our Lord's death, raised in the likeness of his resurrection. Amen. Well, again, we want to welcome you today, and if you would grab one of these connection cards in the pew in front of you there, uh, fill that out, especially if you're a first or second time guest. We'd love to know that you're worshiping with us, and we'd love to pass along some information about our church, if you would allow us, so please fill that out. Uh, for the rest of us, prayer requests, be sure and get that in, and put that in the uh, the offering plate at the end of the service, the ushers will be at the doors, okay, for offering at the end of the service. So be aware of that. A couple of really quick things. I uh, want to say thank you to all who came out and built Bethlehem. And if you didn't see that, here's Bethlehem being built in 30 seconds. So you're watching Back to Bethlehem being built. Physically, it's a few tons of wood and screws, but spiritually, it's the possibility that somebody's eternity will change forever. And beyond that, it's an opportunity for the church to show the world what the body of Christ looks like when they are in unity, all working for the glory of God. So amen, thank you so much.
And thank you, Chris Evans and John Knowles, for the footage of uh, putting putting all that together. Thank you so much. Um, so uh, we still need some help. We had a lot of help yesterday. We still need some help with uh, townspeople. So if you have already signed up or if you're interested in being a townsperson, uh, we need you to, to uh, at the end of the service, come to the front five or six rows, and we're just going to talk with you for about maybe five to seven minutes real quick, okay? So a quick meeting right after the service for all townspeople and wannabe townspeople. And uh, I was telling the pastor this week, we, we have devised the slickest advertising campaign for Back to Bethlehem this year. It's, if you know Jesus, tell somebody who doesn't how to find him. And this uh, card will help you do that, help invite them to Back to Bethlehem. And they're found out there in the Back to Bethlehem uh, table. And so grab a handful of those, give them to friends and family. Yes, we are going to be advertising around town. Uh, Yes, we're going to be doing some things. But we all know, right, amen, the most important way that somebody can find out about Jesus is through a personal connection. And so we're asking you to take these and, and personally invite people. So please, please do that for us, okay? All right. Did I, I think I covered everything. All right. Well, we are going to be speaking about the church today. And what a great song that reminds us of that, this great old hymn, The Church's One Foundation is Christ Alone. church. 
Uh, when we're called the church, we're also referred to as what? The body of Christ. Let's sing this together. It's a wonderful thing to have a father who's perfect. Amen? Yes. Let's sing about that good, good father. Thank you. 
sovereign king of glory. Lord, and we get the opportunity to be called your children, your body. Lord, we pray that as we learn from uh, the open word today, that uh, we will see a little bit deeper, a little bit richer, what it means to be the body of Christ. And Lord, may we play that part uh, well. May we learn things today that will help us in, in our endeavor to be the body of Christ better than we've been in the past. Because we, each and every one of us in this room have an opportunity to do better. We know that. And uh, Lord, we pray that today we take it. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, good morning. I welcome you here today. And it's a blessing to <clears throat> open up the Word of God and 
study the scriptures and see how God is going to apply these to our lives. So today we're kind of entering obviously a new uh, section of the book of Ephesians. We've talked about chapters 1 through 3 and what those chapters mean. And then today we're going to begin in chapter 4. And the overarching theme pretty much from chapter 4 through chapter 6 is building upon what it means to be a healthy body. What it means to be a healthy church. So thus the title, a healthy church. Are you at all concerned with your physical health? Now, the older you get, I think you're more concerned. When I was younger, I didn't care too much. A couple of falls out of a tree, and the older you get, the more you think about those kinds of things. Uh, I asked Brother David this morning, I said, are you stiff? And he said, oh, yeah. And, and I was, too, from pulling those walls and picking them up, and they're, they're heavier than they used to be to me, for sure. But many of you have uh, your health at the top of your mind, especially when you have something wrong with you. And you uh, will, at times, practice healthy eating habits. Won't you? At times, and that's all a struggle for us, I get it. Uh, some of you try to exercise a couple of times a week. Some of you take this way too far. You drink these uh, herbal supplements and things like that, which is absolutely nasty. <laughs> now, I'll, I'll drink some protein, of course, and it's not the best in the world. The boys growing up would try to drink that stuff, and they say, Dad, that's like chalk. It's nasty. Well, we would all agree that physical health is important. Chapter 4 of Ephesians uh, addresses the health of another body, the church. And the health of this body is way more important than the health of our physical bodies. There are all kinds of health opinions out there at the end of the day and it changes from week to week. But the health of the body of Christ is an eternal truth that never changes. And we have to hear what God says about this body and how we should respond. So if you've been called with a divine call, and you are saved today, then here's the glorious news. You are part of the body of Christ. You are part of the church of the Lord God, and we need to be concerned about its health. So, I'm only going to preach verse 1 this morning, and many of you are not surprised about that whatsoever. But in order for you to see how this all connects. So in the next few weeks, I will preach uh, the 7th today, the 14th, and the 21st. And then we're going to take a break from Ephesians and not come back until the first of the year. Why? Because we've got the Advent. All right? So I'm going to preach on the Incarnation beginning on the 28th of November all the way up to the 19th. And we'll do the lighting of the Advent candle as well. So I've got a few shots at chapter 4. Don't know how far we're going to get. But let's read it in its entirety today. You ready? And therefore, a prisoner for the Lord. Uh, sorry, I, Paul, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Here's the manner. With all humility and gentleness, with patience. Bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit of the bond of peace... There's only one body, one spirit, 
just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father over all, who is over all and through all and in all. By grace, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. Stop and think about that. If you're part of this body and you're saved, God has given you at least one gift to be functioning in this body. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions of the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers, pastor slash shepherd, Shepherd, pastor, teacher, verse 12, to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. What an awesome set of scriptures. A healthy church. Now, it's a call to be a healthy church, and we are called to maintain unity. We're going to see that we're called to use our gifts for the glory of God. We're called to grow spiritually, and as the text continues through, all these things will be picked up. But I I trust you realize at this point that the first three chapters of Ephesians were important. They have grounded us in the God of the gospel. And in all three chapters combined, there's only one imperative command. Isn't that interesting? That in the first three chapters, you only have one imperative command. And it is actually chapter 2, verse 11. Therefore, remember. That is, that is the one imperative command that out of all three chapters, Paul gives us this one thing to do, to remember. Why? It's because the focus in chapters 1 through 3 has been on what God has done. The focus is what God has done for us in Christ. So, Ephesians 1 through 3 is a doctrinal foundation of grace. It's all doctrine. But today we move to the second half of Ephesians. So Paul will move and make a transition from all that incredible theology that he has expounded in chapters 1 through 3. And he's going to bring all that to the application of that truth. Chapter 4 through chapter 6. Theology, folks, must be worked out into your life. Please hear me. Don't fall off either side of the horse when it comes to theology versus application. 
Both of those are so vitally important. It will become clearer as we go through the text. But chapters 4 through 6 is nothing more than Paul taking what he has taught in chapters 1 through 3 and working all that into our lives by way of application. So we're moving from doctrine to duty. It's one thing to believe something. It's another thing to practice something. We're moving from creed. I'm not saying that in the negative sense of a creed outside of Scripture. We can certainly see the Scripture as creed, right? We're moving from creed to conduct. We're moving from the indicatives. What are those? One fact after another of what God has done for us. We're moving from those over to imperatives. Now that you know what you believe, here's the way you're supposed to live. And Paul's not bashful. He tells you to do it. He says, walk. Right? He gives imperative commands. So, we're moving from the gospel explained. Have you enjoyed that? Chapters 1 through 3. That's the gospel explained. And now we're going to move to the gospel applied. So, Paul is concerned about unity and maturity in the body. And then when you get to verse 17. He's going to begin to uh, 4.17 down through 5.2. He's going to start talking about new life in the community. And that, that section 17 through 5 too can be summarized by putting off the old and putting on the new. In other words, if you're saved, you ought to have new garments. You ought to look different. And then we're going to proceed on. He's going to talk about not so much in terms of taking off and putting on, but he's going to be talking about how you walk in wisdom and in the light of God. And then in chapter 5, 18 through 6, 9, we get to talk about the filling of the Holy Spirit of God and what the home life ought to look like. Aren't y'all ready for that? Y'all probably talked about that this morning, right? Husband and wife relationship, living life, filled with the Spirit of God. What does the home look like when you're filled with the Spirit of God? We're going to get there, okay? And then we have chapter 6, 10 through 20, which concludes the whole letter. And it is the most detailed exposition of spiritual warfare found anywhere in the Bible. Those things of, is spiritual warfare important for the health of this church? You better believe it. So, Paul is going to conclude with it. Again, remember the focus here, beginning in chapter 4, verse 1, is on unity and maturity. Now, I don't know what you think about this, but I find it interesting that unity is the first thing out of the gate after Paul gives a lengthy exposition of, the, of, of incredible theological points. He's soaring in theology, and then he begins to focus on application do y'all find it interesting that unity and maturity are the two things that he begins to speak of so clearly? Now, I want to ask you a question. Where would you start? If you were to summarize all of chapters 1 through 3 and then ask yourself the question, okay, how am I going to apply this to life? How many of you would actually think that unity would be what would come out of your mouth? Now, think about how rich this is. Did you know that unity is a Christian ethic? We don't look at it like that, but God does. Unity in the body and maturity. Where would we start? Well, I think probably most of us would say, based on chapters 1 through 3, we ought to think seriously about sexual purity before God. Right? We ought to think about not stealing. We ought to think about not being someone who is stricken with greed. We would probably say something like, Ooh, we better be careful with our tongue. And how we gossip and flap our lips based upon this great salvation that we've been given. In other words, we would probably focus our attention on obvious sins. 
those cultural things that we see everywhere. But, but I'm trying to get you to understand that Paul was vitally, vitally concerned with what goes on in the body. Now, are these sins real and true and devastating to the body? Gossip and sexual impurity? Absolutely. But that's not where he starts. He begins with the issue of unity and maturity. So when he moves to doctrine and duty, the focus is on unity. It's, it's the unity among the people of God. He's going to focus on maturity. Only after he lays the groundwork of unity and maturity will he then begin to focus on sexual immorality. He will talk about lying. He will talk about cheating. And he will talk about stealing. But does this reveal something to us about the ethical focus of the New Testament? Because when we think of ethics, we usually don't think in terms of unity and maturity. Yet that's exactly where Paul starts. So folks... The New Testament is concerned about life in this community of faith. We are called by God. I think it's going to be on the wall, right? For too long, coming in over there. Life together under the word. That ought to define this church. We are living life together under the word of God. That's, that's where we, we fall. We, we willingly submit ourselves to the word of God. So if that is the case, what goes on in this body is important. Are we one? How do we treat one another? Are we preserving the peace that's been bought for you by the Son of God? Are we preserving that in this body? Are we growing in such a way that we honor the Lord Jesus Christ by which we've been united? Remember, not only has God saved you, but chapter 2 verse 11 not only tells us where we came from, but where we are now. How we've been united into the body of Christ. So again, all that was free for y'all this morning. This is introduction. But it is part of the sermon. We're probably a third of the way done already, right? So look, is Paul concerned about our interior lives? Absolutely. But here, the primary focus is on the covenant community and how we actually live out our salvation based upon unity and maturity. So how do we treat one another in the body? We might need to revamp our understanding of Christian ethics because our God is deeply concerned about how we treat one another in this place, how we're actually living out the gospel. Okay, you ready? I therefore. Isn't that the way Paul starts off? I therefore. Now, therefore is important. It is inferential. It is an inferential conjunction. Now, some of you hate English. I get it. But in order to know Greek, you've got to know something about English. As a matter of fact, the more you know about Greek, you better know more about English. And I'm not the best in the world at speaking it, but I know how to read it. Because you have to when you study the scripture. Okay? So why is this conjunction so vitally important? Because it carries the whole weight of everything that Paul has said in chapters 1 through 3. Now, do y'all want me to go back and preach all that? To run us up to chapter 4 verse 1. I mean we probably should. But it carries the whole ethical weight of what he has said in chapters 1 through 3. And he brings it all to light. Think about it like this. He has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the, in the heavenly places in Christ. Insofar as he has elected, justified, adopted, redeemed, sealed. Therefore. Right? That's the way you can think about this. Based on all of that, then there's this therefore. 
How about this in chapter 2? You were dead in trespasses and sin, but Christ made you alive. Therefore, are y'all feeling the weight of this? That's, that's exactly what's going on. In other words, folks, based upon one, chapters 1 through 3, your life ought to look like something. That's why he gives the therefore. He prayed that they would understand the hope of their calling and be given the spirit of wisdom and revelation. Why? Therefore. Look, you need to look like what you are. So it is Paul saying this to us. All that I have taught you, whether it's been on election or redemption or grace or the prayers that I prayed for you, it has this radical therefore implication. All this soaring theology is not just to fill your heads full of doctrine so you walk around with a lopsided head. I got all the doctrine right. I got one through three down pat. No, folks. It's designed to give you that balance to be able to live out the Christian life. It's not aimed just to fill your head. It's aimed to shape your life. No amens? It's, it's not aimed just to fill your head, but to shape your life. This is what the therefore is there for. All of those statements about redemptive indicatives of what God has done leads us to this therefore. In other words, all the indicatives leads to application. Truth must be applied. In the book of Romans, Paul will spend Romans 1 through chapter 11 telling us all about this incredible soaring doctrine. And when he gets to chapter 12, verse 1, what does he say? You ought to have this memorized. I urge you, therefore, brothers, in view of God's mercy, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. Folks, do you see the connection? Straight from 11 chapters of what you believe, straight into how you apply it to your lives. Do I need to stay on this for a while? I mean, some of you are loving it. You're nodding. But I can't, I can't do that. But this is what's going on. In this text, is chapters 1 through 3, and then the therefore. Here's the deal. Biblical Christianity always has a therefore. You ever thought about the fact that legalism doesn't have a therefore? It's, legalism says, do this, do this, do this, do this, do this. Don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. But it never gives you a reason why you're doing this or not doing this. That's why legalism kills. Dead orthodoxy. And what is that? Having all the right theology but never actually living it out in life. That doesn't have a therefore either. Biblical Christianity always has a therefore. And there are some of you who have the propensity. The propensity in your own heart is that when you hear chapters 1 through 3, you're satisfied. And you're like, man, I got the doctrine. I got chapters 1 through 3. I've got election in my back pocket. Well, I'm just going to tell you, if you never live it out, then you're not elected. Period. If there's never living it out in life, then don't tell me that you're saved and redeemed and forgiven. Right? Because the proof will come out in the pudding. Right? It'll come, the ingredients that have been poured out in you will come out. What's in the bottom of the well always comes out in the bucket. Right? So, some of you think, well, I've got all this down pat. I've got Ephesians 1 through 3. But some of you say, you could care less about chapters 1 through 3. And you just say, preacher, tell me what to do. I want the practical. 
Just tell me how to live. Well, folks, here's the deal. Paul doesn't fall off either side of the horse. He gives the doctrinal foundation that is so necessary. The doctrinal foundation has to be there in order for the ethical framework to be built on a firm foundation. Right? So that you know what you're doing. Folks, think about this. You won't know what to do or why you're doing it unless you know the doctrine. Unless you know what the Bible says. So please don't, please don't fall off either side of the horse. What we believe and how we live are inextricably woven together. All right? So I only have one point this morning. But it's really good that when a preacher preaches, he has at least one point. All right? Here it is. A healthy church will walk worthy of our divine calling. Listen. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. When I read that, I say, Lord, every word is pregnant with meaning. So sometimes it just, we preach it by a concept analysis. Let's just dig into the word. So let me start and go fast. You listen fast, I'll preach fast. You ready? Watch this. I, a prisoner. Well, the better rendering is, Paul said, I am a prisoner in the Lord. Have we already heard this? Right, chapter 3, verse 1. In my Bible, all I had to do was look left. I don't know about the way yours is designed. Verse, chapter 3, verse 1. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner. Now, the question is, why would Paul reiterate this? Why would Paul say, look, just a reminder that I'm a prisoner. I think he's reminding them this before he makes his pastoral appeal. I mean, he's about to urge them to, to view their calling in such a way that it lifts it up higher for them to understand what God has done in their lives. Before he does that, his own situation, he's in prison, illustrates what a worthy walk actually looks like. Paul is behind bars in prison, chained to a Roman guard. And yet, he's talking about this worthy life. So this is Paul's way of sealing his own commitment. By demonstrating to all these Ephesians the price that he's willing to pay for the gospel and for their sake. Could we say something about the international church around the world and being persecuted? Does this not fit well with that? The price that has been paid. So Paul holds this out as motivation for no other better way of saying it than to say, folks, when he says I'm a prisoner, we ought to take the Christian life seriously. I mean, for no other reason than for Paul to say to them, all right, this comes at a price. Folks, do you understand the price that was paid for you to have the prison epistles? Ephesians, Philippians, Galatians, and Colossians. Those were written from prison. Do you, do you understand how awesome it is for you to be able to hold a copy of the word of God in your hand? Do you know the price that was paid for you to get this in English? People died so that this was translated into English. Folks, don't forget, when you hear the word prisoner, it, it heightens the urging by Paul because he's sitting in a prison cell for the cause of Christ and the gospel. So, those who brought this faith to us labored to put the word of God in our language. They did it with a price. And there are believers all over this world this morning who are paying the price because they are prisoners of Christ. By the way, he's not only a prisoner of Christ, he's a prisoner in Christ. In other words, he saw those chains where he was chained to Jesus as the best place in all the world to be, belonging to Jesus. There's an interesting text in 2 Corinthians where Paul says that we are led about with a triumphal processional. 
And, and we think that, well, that's just victory. Well, what does that mean? Well, a king will come back from battle during that time frame and all the subjects will be chained to the chariot. And as he went through town for the parade as the king, he would have all of those he had conquered behind the chariot in chains. Whew, isn't that good? Paul is saying, I'm chained to the chariot. But the king is victorious. He's a triumphant king. And yes, there's a price to be paid. And yes, it costs something. But that's the most triumphal position you could ever be in, being chained to Jesus. Amen? You see why I couldn't preach but verse 1? All right. All of life for Paul was in Christ. And folks, I encourage you to see your life like that. Whether you're in prison or whether, Paul says, whether I'm abased or whether I'm... uh, whether I'm hungry or whether I'm fed, whatever condition I'm in, therein I can be content because he saw himself as being in Christ. So Paul has his change, chains and there were a demonstration of the glory and of the gospel and of the price that he was willing to pay. And then he says, I exhort you. And that's a good translation. I entreat you, I implore you, but the strongest terminology would be, I exhort you. In other words, he's making his appeal to the will and to the actions of every believer based on the fact that God has decisively done something for you in Jesus Christ. And based upon that, he's saying, I exhort you. Here it is. I exhort you to do what? Walk. What does it mean to see the term walk? Well, translators say it means to conduct one's life. In other words, it has something to do with the way you conduct your life. And the Bible says you are to walk. So if you're here this morning, each person, Christian or not, we all have a manner of walk. We all have a manner of life. And what does that walk do? Stay with me. It characterizes our life. That walk will characterize your conduct. And it will characterize your behavior. You can walk in an undisciplined way. You can walk in a disobedient way. But notice the word is walk. In Hebrews 12, the writer, which I think was Paul giving the information, Luke probably wrote it. But the fact is, he will use another athletic metaphor. And what is that? Yes. Let us run the race that is set before us. Well, here the terminology is walk. Uh, Aren't you glad he did not say... Like a quarter horse. Sprint like mad in light of the calling you've been given. In other words, sprint like a quarter horse in a way worthy of your calling. This, I mean, folks, is there anything really spectacular about walking? Think about this. When's the last time you tuned in and watched a 10-mile marathon on TV? A walking marathon. When's the last time you did this? Uh, several uh, months ago, Natalie, are you here, Natalie? Wave at me. Okay, she's back there. Nathan has strep. He's better. He, he'll be clear tomorrow. But anyway, uh, but Natalie, a few months ago, said, let's start walking. I'm like, that's boring. <laughs> my heart doesn't get to beating as it should. I mean, that's just not my style. But I succumbed. As a matter of fact, Natalie's 49 today. Today's her birthday. Yep. Yep. And she told me not to say anything, but I said, the people who know it's your birthday and I don't say anything, that's worse than saying something about your birthday. 
but she's talking about, we're talking about walking. And, but I've learned something. If you walk briskly and you walk further, then, you know, you burn four or 500 calories if you go three miles when you walk. So we started doing this, but it is boring, right? There's, there's not anything really, other than the fact that I'm walking with my wife. <laughs> right. I will have to preach chapter five, right? All right, all right. But here's the deal. It doesn't take a whole lot of coordination to walk. Now, I know as you get older, but, 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 but generally speaking, you're just putting one foot in front of the other. Let's think about this. It's really, it doesn't take a lot of coordination. I know some people walk better than others, but the ability to walk is simple. One foot in front of the other. He is calling us to a walk, folks. Some in our church life are like quarter horses. As soon as the gate flies open, you just bolt out of the gate. You run as fast as you possibly can run, but in a quarter mile, you're dead. And not only do you stop serving, you don't show up anymore. You don't ever come to church. That's another sermon about walking worthy of the calling to which you've been called. But here's the deal. I think God is more interested in a plow horse than he is a quarter horse. Don't you think so? And that's why there's such a, an emphasis upon walking. The steady, forward, moving process. And here's the deal, folks. You know this. When I was singing Good, Good Father, I can't hardly sing the song without crying. I said, Lord, help me. I want to sing this song. Can't hardly do it. Why? Because God's grace transforms you. And then when it starts to transform your life, then you begin to walk. God, look, folks, that's what salvation is. God arrests the tension in your heart through the preaching of the word and the power of the Holy Spirit. You trust Jesus as Lord and Savior, and then you begin to walk by grace. And God begins to transform you with every step of the way, right? Now, we all like speed. I, I watch NASCAR, right? But the emphasis here is this is day by day. Thank God I'm not what I was yesterday. That day by day, God is transforming. All right, here we go. Got to listen fast. According to my watch, I got three minutes. But I think that we fall back. So actually, <laughs> it's just 1030. All righty then. I didn't set my clock. Mine says 1030. Here it is. Worthy. Check it out. Walk worthy. Now, in other words, is this walking in a way that shows that we are worthy? Is that what this means? We're going to end up walking in a way to show that we are worthy. Let me show you the biblical implications of it in just a few verses. I've got them marked. For the sake of time, please just listen to these. Uh, chapter 1, verse 27 of the book of Philippians. Listen. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. You hear that? So that whether I come and see you or I am absent. Okay. Colossians 2, verse 10. Listen to it. Same, I'm sorry, 1.10. Chapter 1, verse 10, if you're taking notes, listen. So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing Him, bearing fruit for every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. And one more, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 12. For you know how like a father with his children we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God. Who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. So, what is the implication? 
Well, this is not living in a way that merits the gospel or merits Christ for us. Much like what is said in the gospel of Luke in chapter 3. We need to bring forth fruits that are worthy of repentance. What does that mean? Is this bringing forth fruit that merits repentance? No, it is bringing forth fruit in keeping with or that is fitting with repentance. So in other words, these things are meriting something from us. Not, we're not earning them. This means that to walk worthy of the Lord means to walk in a way that the Lord is worthy of. It means to walk in such a way to show what God deserves. In other words, it's walking in such a way to show you the value of the one who has actually saved you. It's a call to act in a way that fits the great value and the glorious nature of our God and the gospel and our calling. The text says, of your calling. Walk in a way that reflects the glory of your calling. Walk in a way that your calling deserves. If he, in fact, called us out of darkness into his glorious light, then we are called by God to walk in a manner that reflects what God has done in us. Paul is going to use this word calling several times. Chapter 1, verse 18 is the first time. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which, you ha- which he has called you. And then the verse we're in, calling to which you have been called. And look down to verse 4. There is one body and one spirit just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call. So, if he in fact called us out of darkness into a marvelous light, light, then we are to think about walking worthy of this particular calling. The Bible tells us it's a call to a glorious hope. uh, And an outstanding, wonderful, incredible future with blessings. Uh, We are called to union with Christ. We're called... In union with his resurrection. You're called in union, believe it or not, with his exaltation where we are already seated with Christ in the heavenly places. We are called as part of God's manifold wisdom. So that call brings us into these blessings in which you have been called. It reflects God's divine initiative into your life in bringing these spiritual blessings to fruition. So, the calling to which you have been called focuses on God's work. In calling us and giving you all of these redemptive privileges and blessings. Folks, the calling is God's work. It's God's work in you. Paul was fond of this term. He's going to say in Romans 8, he's going to give calling in between those two massive principles of predestination and justification. He's going to give that in there. There's no question in the Bible, folks, that calling is used in such a way To describe how God brings about his plan for our lives. And the Bible says walk worthy of that particular calling. To those whom the gospel is the power of God and not foolishness. You're identified as the called in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Then he turns right around and says consider your calling brethren. Consider that. So the calling brings us from unbelief to belief. And in time and space, we hear the word of God, we believe the word of God, we trust in Jesus only for salvation. And we are saved by grace through faith. You know that to Paul, this was a holy calling. And that's why I inserted divine calling in the division. Look what he says in 2 Timothy chapter 1 verse 9. Listen close. 
Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me his prisoner. There it is again. But share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling. Not because of our own works, but because of his own purpose of grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. So chapter 1 of 1 Corinthians verse 9. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. So God's grace in our lives manifested in his calling deserves from us lives that reflect the glory of that calling. This is what Paul is teaching us. This is how he begins this ethical section in Ephesians. God has done so much for us in his grace, in his mercy, in his love. And now we are called by God to live in such a way that reflects that glory. That's how we're called. God deserves that kind of life from us. Amen? Now, think about this. We're to live in such a way that it demonstrates our appreciation for his saving grace. But this is not a debtor's ethic. This is very important for us to think about this morning. This is not paying God back. Where would you begin? And how would you ever end in paying him back? Isaac Watts got it right. Did he not? When I survey the wondrous cross, here's what he says. Were the whole realm of nature mine, that were a present far too small. Love so amazing. Here's the value. Here's how you live in such a way that you value it. Lord God, love so amazing, so divine, it demands my soul, my life, my all. Right? That's the response. Anything you have to offer, even if you had the whole world as a present to God, to pay him back for his grace would be way too small. It's not a debtor's ethic. The grace of God in you is so magnificent. Folks, hear me. It is so transforming that now you need to live in such a way that is fitting for what God has done for you. Live in such a way. In other words, be what you are. Just look at chapter 1. That's who you are. You're an heir of Christ. You're co-seated with him. You've been given every, every spiritual blessings in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Live like it. That's what he's saying to us. Growing up with my boys, you know, we would often, I couldn't think of one particular incident, really. I didn't want to hang one of them out to dry or anything like that. Timothy's like, well, you usually do, huh? But, you know, at Christmas sometimes as parents, we, we buy them things. And we, and we value it a lot. We're like, man, this is a great gift. Boy, it's no time to that thing's just sitting over in the corner. And it's not used anymore. We're like, well, well, shucks. Maybe we just missed it. Or maybe they just didn't value it much. You know, I promise you this. Uh, my son, Nathan, he'll wear that Freddie Freeman jersey. Yeah! Right? Y'all know the Braves, right? Y'all know I'm in Missouri now, right? But here's the deal. I mean, when do you value it most, a gift given to you? Uh, like, it, let's say if it's a Braves ball cap, right? I read somewhere where this kid wore his uh, NFL jersey that he bought for like 11 years. And his mom washed it every other day and he wore that thing. Now, do you think that boy valued it? 
All right, let's say you get that ball cap and, and you hang it on a wall. And, and I know it's clean and all, you don't want to wear it, but is that really valuing it like putting it on your head every single day and never taking it off? Folks, I'm just trying to get you to see the point. God wants to say, praise me for the gift. I mean, it's the most satisfying treasure you could ever be given. So praise me for the gift. Walk in such a way that reflects the truths that he's taught us. Walk in such a way that honors the redemption that he's bought for us. So the foundation of all healthy Christian living and church life must be doctrine. But it can't stop there. It has to go into application. Doctrine always comes first. But application certainly must come after. So the doctrine of salvation forms the very foundation to build our lives upon. Folks, the grace of God in salvation is indeed transforming grace. Right? Paul sees this call as shaping our lives. He sees this call as motivating our walk. So here's a sermon. How is your walk? How is your own individual, personal walk before the Lord? What values does your walk reflect? Is it more, to grab an expression we've used so often, is it more talk than Walk. Well, folks, the Christian life is believing and living. How's your walk? I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. God help us. That's step one in a healthy church life. Walk worthy of the calling. Let's pray. God, thank you, Father. You're so good to give us your word. Lord, uh, we're feeble, we are limited, uh, we are uh, finite preachers, unable to grasp everything. But Lord, you clearly teach us in your word certain things that we don't have to wonder what you're saying. When you say walk worthy of the calling to which we've been called, you're loud and clear. You've given us so much. God, you've acted on our behalf. And Lord, help us. Help us to walk. Lord God, help us to be willing to say to you, Father, this very day, would you bring every thought under captivity to your obedience? God, would you confront me with your word? Would you, Lord God, undermine my complacency, my patterns of behavior and thought? Lord, you deserve it from us. You deserve a worthy walk that honors who you are. Help us, Lord God. If there's someone who is lost and they've not even began their walk, they've got to start where all of us started. With bended heart and knee before Christ the King. And say, Jesus, I trust you only for my salvation. That you paid the price. You bore my sin in your body on the tree. God the Father, you did not spare your only son, but you gave him up for us all. God, may people trust you today and put their faith and hope in Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. Brother David is going to lead us in When I Surveyed the Wondrous Cross. Let's sing it together. If God has touched your heart, if, if there's a commitment you need to make, promise you need to grasp, whatever that might be, you respond. When I surveyed the
singing. Mike and Belinda, this couple was here a long time ago. Chris, I asked them if they remembered you, and they did faintly. So that's a long time ago, right? If you didn't know Chris Dixon, right? You, so that was in the early 90s? Uh, we left about 99. Yeah, y'all were young bucks, right? Yes. Yep. Well, they went off, and uh, Mike was the superintendent of schools, and they they most recently, and I don't think it matters us saying this because they've moved to Kimberling City, and now they're wanting to come home, come back here. So they've been visiting for quite some time. It's Mike and Belinda Mason. And so they stand before you today and want to be a part of this church family. They've gone through the new members class, and so we stand them here to tell you they're our newest members of our faith family here at FBCO. Amen? Amen. All right. Glad to have Mike and Belinda. God bless you. You can go back there and reacquaint yourself with Mr. Dixon. He's in the back over there, all right? All right. We'll greet you as we go out. Uh, David, you have an announcement? Well, we're just going to... Uh, oh, as... let, me, let me finish mine and get out of here. We do have church tonight. What? Yes. Yeah, we got church tonight at 6. I'm going to preach out of Malachi about serving the Lord. And then uh, please uh, keep this information top of mind tonight for 7 o'clock. And God bless each one of you. Hope you have a wonderful day. Amen. So after our closing song, if those would be dismissed, go ahead and be dismissed. If you're a townsperson or want to know about being a townsperson, come down here to the first five or six rows, okay? Here we go. One heart. One heart, one spirit, one voice to praise you. We are the body of Christ. One goal. See you.